0: Few elections have been as important and controversial in the UK and internationally than the recent Brexit vote last month. To avoid overcomplicating things further than they already are, in June of 2016, after years of debates and name-calling, the UK had an election as to whether to stay in the European Union. The election was close, but after the dust settled, a 51.9% majority voted to leave the EU, with a date set to no later than the 29th of March, 2019. But as anyone paying attention to the politics of the UK can tell you, this did not happen. This is because the very meaning of Brexit differs among Brexiteers, so various policies and deals with the EU have been thrown around by journalists and politicians. Furthermore, to many in the Remain camp, the vote was too close and another election should be called to determine the nation's future in the EU. In other words, the UK was forced to demand an extension multiple times to decide what a Brexit should mean for the UK, if they should at all. This date became October 31st, which was headed by newly elected Prime Minister Boris Johnson after Theresa May stepped down due to sinking polling numbers and dissent within her party. But again, now with only a slim majority after having some dissent of his own, and the Tories were forced to form a coalition with the DUP of Northern Ireland, Labour wasn't doing well either, with Corbyn's party being accused of anti-Semitism and anti-democracy by opponents. For comments made by Labour Party members, including Corbyn himself, and going against the 2016 vote, And this is a huge oversimplification of what was going on going into the polls last December for the fate of the UK. Long story short, the Tories won a landmark victory, and this all but assures a Tory-style Brexit by January 31st. To those in the Brexit camp, this is no surprise. I mean, if you look at the 2019 MEP elections, the new Brexit party fronted by former UKIP leader Nigel Farage in its first ever election won the most seats of any individual party, sending a rather nasty symbol about the citizens' feelings on the EU. Furthermore, polling leading up to the election was in the Conservatives' favor. As to remainders, this is a shock as they hoped that the 2016 election was a fluke. But with this sizable defeat, I find it hard to deny the will of the British people. That loss was 60 seats for Labour and one seat for the Liberal Democrats. Ironically, that seat was held by party leader Joe Swinson. These were a loss to a combination of the Conservatives and the Scottish National Party in Scotland which saw a massive gain of 13 seats, 48 of the 49 Scottish seats, spurring the ideas of a possible Scottish independence vote, which, given the current numbers, may achieve some success. But at the end of the day, it only matters who has the majority and by how much. In this race, the Tories ran laps around the others. With the Brexit party agreeing to step down in order to avoid spilling the vote, the Conservatives had nearly the entire right wing of Britain united, leaving them with a 66-seat gain for a total of 365 seats well over the 326 majority. That's what happened that election night. But now for the important question, what does this mean for Britain going forward, especially as far as Brexit is concerned? Well, I can't say for sure, and depending on who you ask, it will either be the event that saves Britain from a certain destruction or the very thing that causes it. Personally, I think in the long run, this will be great for the UK. First, the UK will no longer have to support the EU's parliamentary system. According to The Week, this will save Britain 8.5 billion pounds or around $11.1 USD. Furthermore, Britain will be able to make its own regulations, environmental and economic, immigration laws, and negotiate its own trade with individual countries, rather than running them through the EU first. In summary, the Brexit message focuses on three main points. First, British sovereignty and self-determination. The second being security. And the third, that the EU is unfair to the British business. A common counterclaim is that if the UK doesn't have access to the single market, who will they trade with? Well, the answer to that is pretty clear. They will either negotiate treaties with that particular country, and if they're unwilling to trade for British goods for whatever reason, then they are allied with the largest economy in the modern world, the U.S. It's not like Britain is restricted solely to its European partners, having a vast amount of allies in Commonwealth countries in the Americas, Africa, and Australia. One problem unique to the United Kingdom is exiting the EU without violating the Good Friday Agreement. The agreement assured free passage between the countries of Northern Ireland, which is part of the United Kingdom, and the Republic of Ireland, which is notably an EU country, among other things, but notably ended the attacks of the Irish nationalist organizations like the IRA and the Real IRA, two related but separate organizations, during a time known as the Troubles. If you want to know the complete history of the three decade-long troubles, I'm leaving a link to Ben Kelly of the Independence article, which summarizes the important events of what occurred. But to simplify, nationalists fought loyalists, which was only resolved after over 30 years of fighting and bloodshed. So it's understandable why many are worried about anything that could potentially upset this already fragile agreement. While many Brexiteers have tried to come up with an outcome that retains borders and the UK's full sovereignty without violating the agreement, the solution is a backstop, which would mean no physical borders between the two countries at the cost of keeping the UK in the EU Customs Union, and with it, the single market. This would leave the UK in an awkward position, like a divorced spouse living in the same house as their ex. The UK would technically be separated from the EU, but not fully. This is not acceptable for many, especially to hard Brexiteers. But I don't see many other options for the UK except for opening up that bandage and hoping for the best. Either way, this is one area where the remainders definitely hold a leg up as consistency, unity, and pragmatism is concerned. It's these messes of treaties and entanglements, all of which rely heavily on EU membership, that make Brexit so difficult to analyze and execute, as many of these disputes will have to be renegotiated upon the, the UK's exit, for better or worse especially to Remainers, this all sounds threatening enough to disregard the vote in democratic elections, such as those in 2016, as the will of the people will certainly end in a catastrophic damage to the UK. But it's not just economic freedom restricted in EU countries, it's personal freedom. For instance, the Directive on Copyright in the Digital Single Market, which contains the notorious Articles 11 and 13, was passed June of last year. This bill requires any copyrighted content, which includes anything from films to individual photos like memes, to be scanned and removed from a host website or incur large legal penalties. The problem is that the technology isn't at the point yet where automated bots can correctly discern fair use and truly violating content. This has led to many, including YouTube's executives, including CEO Susan Wojcicki, protesting the bill. Wojcicki even said on Twitter, a threat to both your livelihood and your ability to share your voice in the world, end quote. Some have even predicted if Article 13 continues and is enforced to the fullest extent of its description, then YouTube may not be able to serve customers in adopting countries. This is extreme as many of these sites already have ways for creators to appeal a takedown or monetize content they believe violates their copyright. Of course, with the amount of content added to YouTube and other social media sites every second, there will always be cracks that offenders will get through. But if sites like YouTube are punished for users' violations, then running social media sites will be almost, if not impossible. Article 11, now Article 15, would ban unapproved hyperlinks, so if you plan on publishing content with the hope of making money from your work and dedication and want to be transparent with your audience on source material, then you're out of luck because you're going to have to pay for that. Furthermore, how do you criticize a news article if you can't show or link to any part of the work without your entire argument or point being hearsay? You might be wondering how such bills were passed, especially with all the various protests and concerns from citizens. Well, the answer is politicians' best friends, lobbyists. If you don't like what they're doing in the EU, just vote them out like any other elected official, except they're not elected, at least by the common people. That's left up to the ruling elites. The 28 members of the European Commission, including its president, aren't directly elected. Rather, the European Parliament, which is directly elected by the citizens, elects one member for each of their respective countries. The Economist defends this system by comparing it to how the U.S. appoints members of the Executive Cabinet. But this isn't an apples to apples comparison, as the president is not elected by the Senate or elected through those appointed members of cabinet. Although perhaps the Electoral College could be seen as a form of this, it's still a very weak comparison and assumes the U.S. electoral system is democratic, not a Republican system, which is the source of contention. Furthermore, in the same article, The Economist concedes that there is a systematic democratic deficient in how these officials are elected, albeit the writer doesn't go as far as to say that they are elected undemocratically. In addition, that's quite small. One person represents an entire country. How is the council supposed to be representative of any country when the sole person who supposedly represents the people's interest in the executive branch of the EU isn't even elected by them? Yes, they have a number of parliamentary seats. There are 751 in total, 73 are the UK's, but the executive office is lacking for nearly a continent of individuals. With this system of government and laws, is it any surprise that the British people may feel that leaving is the best to secure their interest and remain represented in Parliament? The most recent election in the UK has shown a deep distrust between the country's people and the political elites in Brussels. This stems from the lack of democratic transparency, limited representation, unpopular and controversial legislation, and infringements on the UK's national sovereignty and the powers that come with it. While most, if not every political reformation While most, if not every, political reformation will have its faults and detractions, in my opinion, in my opinion, these faults, although, should not go ignored are outweighed by the potential good of this shift. Furthermore, with two votes, it would go against the will of the people of whom these individuals supposedly represent to continue the UK's current relationship with the Euro- with the European Union. These are uncertain times for the British people, and with that, one can only hope that. One can only hope this will work out in their favor.